I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 5th, 2019. Coming up, we speak with clinical psychologist and professor Ken Carter about his new book, Buzz, Inside the Minds of Thrill Seekers, Daredevils, and Adrenaline Junkies. They always said that I do not have a death wish, but at the same time, I know I am not made out of glass. You know, I want to experience these things. Newness tugs at us, writes clinical psychologist Ken Carter. But what about people who can't get enough? These are the thrill-seekers. Ken Carter studies thrill-seekers. He had been encouraged to write a self-help book about how to reduce the urge to seek out thrills. Then something unexpected happened. The more he studied high-sensation seekers, the more he concluded that going after thrills is not a problem in and of itself. It's a personality trait, and with self-knowledge and attention— High-sensation seekers can and do lead a long and meaningful life. Carter's new book is Buzz, Inside the Minds of Thrill-Seekers, Daredevils, and Adrenaline Junkies. Now here's Ken Carter. My name is Ken Carter, and I'm a professor of psychology at Oxford College of Emory University. I like to talk about thrill-seekers. Thrill-seekers, people who climb mountains. Sometimes you think about thrill-seekers that way, but I've discovered it's a personality trait. It's not just sort of what they do, it's sort of who they are as a person. Who they are as a person. You've now published a book about this. Yeah, it's called Buzz. Yes, Inside the Minds of Thrill Seekers, Daredevils, and Adrenaline Junkies. So the buzz they get from being a thrill seeker is the name of the book. And it's also the buzz that we get from watching them and sort of seeing what they do. People are so fascinated by thrill seekers, you have just completed helping the Denver Museum of Science and Natural History do a whole exhibit about thrill seekers. The Denver Museum is the first place in the United States to show this exhibit. And it's an amazing exhibit. So if you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. It's really kid-friendly, and you can actually get in there and enjoy it. Is it like an amusement park? It's a little bit like an amusement park. So if you've ever seen any of those Ninja Warrior kinds of TV shows, they build a miniature one inside of it. So you can actually compete against another person doing those Ninja Warrior-type games. But interestingly to me, as a psychologist, you can also take the sensation-seeking questionnaire and compare your scores against some of these athletes. Oh, you're talking now back to some of the scholarly side of what Uh, you do. This is, after all, a science show. So even though there's this kind of amusement park example of thrill-seeking at the Denver Science Museum, let's go ahead and talk about the science. You have said that there is one researcher who you're especially intrigued by who made a scale for how you judge somebody's component of wanting to take risks. Marvin Zuckerman's a psychologist that came up with this idea. His name is Marvin Zuckerman? Marvin Zuckerman, yeah. So Marvin Zuckerman was looking at how people behave in really dull situations. Was this like in the 1960s? Yeah, it's back in the 1960s. And what he was looking for was putting people in these really boring situations. So Marvin Zuckerman in the 1960s, he was 
kind of putting people in what we know as deprivation tanks. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, he wasn't making people float in salt water in the dark, mm. but your description was, think about putting ping pong balls cut in half on your eyes yeah, yeah. and also just put a lot of white noise in the background and just be that way for hours on end. Exactly. It's called the Gansfield technique. So he was expecting that people who like soothing stuff would be drawn to this experiment. And instead he got this weird assortment of people with kind of hippie style hair, rode it on motorcycles, who were drawn to this boring experiment. Yeah, yeah. And he was so intrigued by it that he gave up all of that research and tried to figure out who these people were who were drawn to this kind of experience. Now, why were they coming to this place to do this really boring stuff if they were thrill seekers? Because some of them would hallucinate. They were actually there for the experience of the hallucinations. He was thinking he would just find out how bored people can be and how they tolerate boredom. And here are these people looking for a sensory deprivation high. Exactly. There weren't any kind of psychological test that could predict who was going to be drawn to this experience. And so he came up with his own test, and there's a version of it that's on my website, and there's a version of it at the Denver Science Museum that you can take to figure out where you score on this. Well, let's guess a little bit about what might be the clues that someone's a thrill seeker. Yeah. Is it like if somebody's an extrovert, they're more likely to be a thrill seeker than an introvert is? Not at all. I mean, there actually are a lot of introverted thrill seekers. And you would think that it has to do with introversion, extroversion, but ice climbing, for example, is a very individualistic thrill-seeking kind of sport. Ocean kayaking, another individualistic thrill-seeking kind of sport. And so sometimes it's the chillest people that are the most thrill-seeking kinds of people. Well, that may make sense because I couldn't help but think about the recent documentary, Free Solo, Alex Honnold, who does these incredible climbs of El Capitan that no one had ever done before without any ropes. Watching it, my hands were sweaty, but he's just as cool as he can be. He doesn't seem like a risk taker, but he's risking his life every move he takes. There's a distinction between a thrill seeker and a risk taker. I mean, thrill seekers aren't doing it for the risks. The risk is sort of the price of admission to the things they want to experience. Do you mean that thrill seekers are not necessarily high-risk people, that they think things out sometimes? Absolutely. Or they don't think of themselves as risk takers. What they want is the experience. But the risk is the thing they're willing to do for the experience. Just out of curiosity, how about you? Are you one of these thrill seekers? Not, not at all. In the scale, the scale goes from zero to 40. Most of the people in the book are 35s and 40s. The average person may be in the 20s. I scored an eight on the scale. Oh my gosh. So a thrill so, seeker is around 35 to 40 on the scale of one to 40. Average people are kind of in the middle you were at kind of at the lowest end of thrill-seeking that a person can be. Yeah, this interview is as, as thrilling as I get, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'll bet a lot of thrill-seekers are scared to be talking in front of a microphone. Could that be? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So this, so this, is, this is my risk-taking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so much nuance in how people are. Your premise is that thrill-seeking is actually another side of personality. It doesn't come from things like being an extrovert what other things did people used to assume this came from? Introversion, extroversion. Some people think that it comes from traumatic experiences or things like that. Some people wonder whether or not thrill seekers have a death wish. In the book, I sort of walk through 
all the different kinds of possible explanations. I came up with the idea that maybe a mini theory like Zuckerman's is really the best way to explain it. And then I walk through different experiences in terms of relationships and careers that these people that are high sensation seekers have. And I interviewed a lot of them in terms of what they do and what their motivations are behind those activities. You put a fair amount of time in your book, which is Buzz, into talking about the hormonal response of people who are thrill seekers and how it's slightly different from how other people respond. Hormones like cortisol, serotonin, norepinephrine, and then there was another one. Yeah, dopamine. Dopamine is that pleasure neurotransmitter. Whenever we experience dopamine, we have pleasure. And we find that a lot of people who are these high sensation seekers actually experience more dopamine when they're doing these high sensation seeking activities, these highly chaotic activities. Now, when you're doing something like, say, riding on a roller coaster, Ken Carter, does your dopamine go up or down? Mine? Mine probably stays about the same. But someone that's a high sensation seeker, they actually experience more dopamine in those highly chaotic experiences. You also mentioned some other hormones that are present and go up or down in these kind of thrilling situations. Mm -hmm. Serotonin, what does it do? Serotonin probably is involved in some experiences that probably goes up for a lot of high sensation seekers. The most important hormone that's involved in this has to do with cortisol. That's that stress hormone that many people are familiar with. It's involved in really initiating that fight, flight, or freeze response that a lot of us have. And interestingly, high sensation seekers experience lower levels of cortisol when they're in stressful situations. So they feel more pleasure because of the dopamine, but less stress because of the lower levels of cortisol. And that's why they're after these highly chaotic experiences like roller coasters and wingsuit flying. Someone like me, I experience lots of cortisol and very little dopamine. So I'm not enjoying it. I'm just stressed out. Okay, so when you're in a roller coaster, your cortisol goes through the roof. Yes. And your dopamine just kind of stays steady, and some of their hormones do this and that. But a thrill seeker, their cortisol tends to be a little higher usually, just as a normal state. Oh, yeah. exactly. Then when they're on the roller coaster, their cortisol level goes down. Yes. And so they feel more peaceful after having had a life-threatening or seemingly life-threatening experience. Well, it would seem life-threatening to me, but because their body isn't experiencing it as life-threatening, they don't perceive it as threatening to them. They perceive it as something calming. I'm thinking again about that famous documentary, Free Solo, which won the Oscar last year with Alex Honnold. He looked so relaxed and so at peace with himself after he finished climbing El Capitan, this incredibly dangerous thing he did without any ropes. He looked peaceful. Mm -hmm. That doesn't surprise you. Not at all. In fact, I think I remember them looking at his amygdala. That's a part of the brain that's associated with fear response. And it wasn't really very active during those kinds of experiences. And the amygdala is a part of her brain that says, you're in trouble. So his body was telling him he was fine. Now, one thing I like about your book, Buzz, is that you make everybody likable. <laughs> Meaning, you know, you're not a thrill seeker. Got some friends who are thrill seekers. One of my favorite examples you give is how a thrill seeker finds standing in a line very boring. Probably their cortisol level goes up because it's stressful for them yes. to be so bored. 
but you stood in line for five hours to get your first iPhone? Yes, yes. I remember telling my students, I was stood in line to get the first iPhone. And they're like, what did you do? Like, I, I said, I just waited. And they said, well, you couldn't play with your phone because there weren't phones. And the idea of standing in line for five hours is something they couldn't imagine. And so for me, having very little ability to be bored is my superpower. What did you do when you were standing in line? I just sort of waited. <laughs> I brought a book. I read it every now and then. But, you know, I, I just, I don't get bored. I don't get bored. So your stress level didn't go up because you were probably looking around taking in the sights, you might have struck up a conversation with someone in the line. Maybe. But I'm also an introvert, so I don't really necessarily need to strike up a conversation. Actually, let, let's go back, because I want to talk about those four different components in this. Yes, let's go back yeah. now that we've kind of d discussed these other things. <laughs> so the four different components of the sensation-seeking scale are thrill and adventure-seeking. These are p people that want those thrilling experiences, like being roller coasters or wingsuit flying. There's experience-seeking. That's uh, sensation-seeking of the mind and of the senses, like unusual foods or meeting unusual people. The last two are uh, tell me how much trouble you might get yourself into if you're a sensation seeker. There's boredom susceptibility, which mine's very low. I almost never get bored. People that score high on boredom susceptibility get irritated when they get bored. They hate getting bored. And the last one is called disinhibition. That's how uninhibited you can get. For a lot of high sensation seekers, I don't get too worried that they're going to get themselves into trouble if their boredom susceptibility and disinhibition scores are average. But if they score high all across the board, then they may do thrill-seeking things that are uninhibited, and they might get bored really easily and just sort of do something spontaneously. Okay, let's go back to that famous example of Alex Honnold in Free Solo, who was so meticulous about how he went about doing one of the most dangerous things anybody has ever done, climbing El Capitan without ropes. But he was very focused, and he practiced, and he practiced, and he practiced. He was taking a huge risk, but it was a very regulated risk, a very planned for risk. You don't worry about him the way you worry about some people. No. My guess is that his born susceptibility scores are relatively low, and his disinhibition scores would need to be average or low as well to practice so many times because you would need to be able to be that meticulous. A lot of times we see those people that are thrill-seekers, and we assume that I just sort of spontaneously went out and climbed El Capitan. In my book, I talk about Will Gadd, who was the first person who climbed up Niagara Falls when it was frozen. You don't just think to yourself, you know what I'm going to do this afternoon? I'm going to climb up frozen Niagara Falls. That takes months and sometimes years of practice and dedication and planning. So that is a thrill seeker, somebody who wants to do that. But the people that you worry about the most are people who do get up in the morning and say, let's go climb the frozen Niagara Falls. There are people like that. Luckily, the park service would stop those things from happening. But there are some people who do some things that are spontaneous that could hurt themselves. Those are the people that I worry about some. How about somebody who likes to party and drink a lot and then get in their car and drive? Is that a thrill seeker? Not necessarily. They may have high levels of disinhibition. We know that people get less inhibited when they've been drinking. So, of course, those people I get concerned about for sure. But in general, what I found from a lot of the research is that a great 
many of the high sensation seekers aren't necessarily risk takers uh, themselves, and they use their high sensation seeking personalities more often for good than for dangerous, risky kinds of things. In fact, we need them in our lives. These are people who are first responders. These are people who are in the military. These are the people driving ambulances or firefighters. Those are people whose careers are high sensation seekers. Do you think someone like Elon Musk, someone like Thomas Edison, Mm -hmm. do you suspect that those were thrill-seeking personalities? Absolutely. In fact, a high percentage of Fortune 500 CEOs fly their own airplanes, for example, not because they just can afford them, but you see high sensation seekers who are airline pilots, for example, because they not only take risks in terms of businesses, but the risks in terms of other areas of their lives as well. Some of these are incredibly responsible people. Some of them are shy and don't want to be in front of a microphone. Mm -hmm. Some people love to talk in front of people, but all of that's independent from this urge to be seeking that thrill. Exactly. It's not just what they do on the weekends. It's sort of who they are as a person, a personality trait that sort of pervades every part of their life. I get the feeling, Ken Carter, in your book, Buzz, that you want people to get this sense of how to deeply understand who they are inside so that they know how to appreciate themselves and also appreciate someone who's very different. Yeah. So that's one of the things I feel like I like as a psychologist is sort of understand um, sort of who they are as a person. And interestingly, this is not the book I intended to write in the first place. I'm a very sort of ordered person. I live a very predictable life. And so when I started to write this book, it was going to be called The Chaos Junkie's Guide to Life. It's going to be a book about how to get people to be less chaotic. And then when I discovered that some people have lives that are chaotic on purpose, and there was a beauty to that chaos, I thought, I'm going to write that book instead. Ken Carter, from your research, do you find that some thrill seekers end up in love with and in a long-term relationship with someone who is totally not a thrill seeker, or is that unlikely? It can be either one. High sensation seekers want someone that they can relate to. Some high sensation seekers find other high sensation seekers to be in relationships with. There's a great story about a couple, Chris and Jess, who are both high sensation seekers that go bouldering together. And there's another wonderful story about a couple where one's a high and one's a low sensation seeker, and they do some experience seeking things together. They go out to dinner and go to wineries together. As long as there is some connection they can be their high or low sensation seekers together. But the key is that the low sensation seeker is best off not trying to keep the thrill seeker from going out and finding thrills. Yeah, we do find that a lot of high sensation seekers, if they're stopped from doing those kinds of things, they can become frustrated. It can really be tough for them because it's really part of who they are as a person. Well, how about in relationships? Can somebody who's a thrill seeker be comfortable in a long-term relationship, or are they more likely to get bored? Some high sensation seekers can be like that. There's a story in the book about a woman that says not only does she jump out of perfectly good airplanes, that sometimes she jumps out of perfectly good relationships because she gets bored. But not all high sensation seekers are like that. So being able to figure out what's important for that person in relationships is important. Now, in your book, you also talk about how there is some connection between thrill-seeking and people who've had some trauma. You give this vivid example of this boy who was in a regular flight across the country where suddenly this passenger jet plunged 30,000 feet. That affected his whole life. 
Yeah. In the uh, American Psychological Association Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, there is a description for PTSD. Sometimes in post-traumatic stress disorder, an individual will seek out risky situations. And if a person's never really had any high sensation-seeking tendencies and then suddenly seeks those things out... To me, as a psychologist, I'm thinking that's probably more of a symptom of PTSD than it is a high sensation-seeking personality. But if they've always sought out high sensation-seeking things, then I'm thinking it's more likely as the personality trait. And that's sort of the way that I look at the differences. Interestingly, though, the research suggests that high sensation-seeking personality actually protects them from developing PTSD. High sensation seekers have lower rates of PTSD than people who are not high sensation seekers. Let's give that a pause and think about that. That's a little surprising. Yeah, yeah. And it allows them to be in those chaotic experiences, those traumatic experiences, and it tends to protect them from it. You see lower levels of PTSD and other anxiety disorders in people with high sensation-seeking personalities. It was a surprising finding. Well... Do you find more broken bones in people who are high sensation seekers? <laughs> yeah, you might expect them to see more broken bones, but interestingly, they actually bounce back more quickly. When they have an injury, they're more likely to go right back and do the thing that they broke the bone doing. Low sensation seekers like me, whenever we have an injury, I'm out, and I'm not going to do that thing again. <laughs> Such an interesting world we live in. You can't define anybody by one particular trait, but this is revealing the special reason that some people really do go out there and do things that increase their sensation. It's as though they don't really feel like they're alive until they get a chance to be on that edge. Yeah, so it was really fascinating for me. I read every study that there was out there on high sensation seeking. And what I've done is I've sort of curated the most interesting ones to me. And I've summarized them in what I hope is a very readable way. And then folded in some of the most interesting stories of interesting people out there. Or who are the high sensation seekers? You also give two different ways to diagnose whether you're a high sensation seeker or not. There's the original scoring sheet that was done by, what is the name of that guy? Zuckerman, Marvin Zuckerman. Marvin Zuckerman back in the 1960s, yes. who was hoping to have very conventional people come in and do a sensory deprivation experience and instead had all the hippies and the wild people come <laughs> in looking for hallucinations. So his first way to check this was to just say yes or no. What are some examples of questions? I like to go to wild parties. Versus? I prefer calmer kinds of things. That's one of his questions. Wild parties or calm conversations? Yes. Yeah. You don't get to choose, well, some days I like this and some days I like that. It's either one or the other. And on and on like that. I like to water ski. Mm. I don't like to water ski. These kinds of things. Right, right. Most people are somewhere in between, so there's a new scale. Yeah, there's a newer scale. It's the brief sensation-seeking scale. It was developed several years ago, and that gives you a couple different choices. And there's only maybe eight or so questions that you can take. as a version of it on my website, and there's also the same questions you can take at the Denver's Museum of Science and Nature. Simple questions that are similar to the ones on the Marvin Zuckerman site. However, it's more... Well, sometimes I feel this way. I never feel this way. Mm -hmm. I always feel this way. So you get gradation to your response. A little bit more nuance to that one. 
Speaking of nuance, there's one more hormone that we haven't talked about. That's testosterone. Yeah, so testosterone. We see higher levels of testosterone in individuals with high sensation seeking. And and by the way, women have testosterone too. It's not like this is just a guy thing. No, it's not just a guy thing. And testosterone also tends to go lower as we get older. And sensation seeking tends to decrease as we get older as well. Is that sad or is that good? Um, I think it's okay. What happens is as we get older, different kinds of things we know will be interesting for us. And so we collect different experiences. What we discover is that different kinds of things are going to be fun and enjoyable for us as well. And at the same time, it's wonderful to hear that there are thrill seekers who are very attentive. They pay attention to what they have to do to stay alive Mm -hmm. and have these on-the-edge experiences. Yeah. And if you talk to them, one of the questions, and and when I put this up on Facebook and Twitter, it's like, I'm going to talk to these people, what do you want me to ask them? The number one question that everybody said is, why do you do this? Why Do you have a death wish? They always said, why do people keep asking me that? I do not have a death wish. But at the same time, I know I am not made out of glass. You know, I want to experience these things. Um, one person of the book said, it's like I have a museum in my mind. And I want to collect these experiences in the world for that museum. If there's something out there to taste... I feel like I have to taste it. And I don't understand how someone cannot taste these things and collect those experiences. And for them, it doesn't make sense to them why you wouldn't. Has all this helped you have more fun when you're on a roller coaster? Uh, Absolutely not. (laughs) I'm an eight. (laughs) An eight out of 40. An eight out of 40. I produce way too much cortisol for those kinds of things. You know, I don't have the software (laughs) to run that program. (laughs) I appreciate the high sensation seekers. I have a different operating system than they do. (laughs) And you like yourself. I love that I'm an eight and I appreciate it. And I appreciate the amount of cortisol I produce. And in the book I talk about, you know, if I do those things... I'm actually braver than they are because I'm actually producing much more cortisol than they do. They don't have to be as brave because their body isn't telling them that it's dangerous. (laughs) Well, Ken Carter, in fact, that's a definition of courage, that if you're not afraid, you can't be courageous. Courage comes from being afraid and doing it anyway. Exactly. But for me, I'm not doing it anyway. So if if I did it, then I would be brave. If I do it, then you can call me brave. Yeah. I'm Shelley Schlender. We've been speaking with Ken Carter, the author of Buzz, Inside the Minds of Thrill Seekers, Daredevils, and Adrenaline Junkies. The Denver Science Museum's current exhibit about extreme sports includes insights from Carter. And Ken Carter will give a book talk this Wednesday, that's tomorrow, at the Boulder Bookstore. Here at KGNU, we have a limited number of copies of Buzz. You can request a copy of Buzz as a thank you gift by pledging your support to KGNU online at kgnu.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.